having these different theories to have critical perspectives on these issues. And if we can't access the emotion that's driving our responses to them, then it's also we're not able to access those emotions when we're developing solutions or working with other people. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Stories of Astonishing Light podcast. I'm Katie Nazrul, your hostess, and I'm delighted to share with you another episode in my season three miniseries, Astonishing WOC Healers. I have conversations with female activists, leaders, game changers, and healers who just happen to be women of color. Today's story is shared by a wonderful woman I've known since my formative teenage years. Growing through waitressing gigs together and the LA music scene. I hope you're sitting down because you are going to be bowled over by this lady's cred. Dr. Nina Flores is assistant professor with the Social and Cultural Analysis of Education Master's Program in the College of Education at California State University, Long Beach. It is there in which she engages students in deep analyses of issues concerning justice, power, and resistance. For 2020 through 2021, Nina was named as a fellow with the University of California National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement in support of her project titled Tweets, Threats, and Censorship, Campus Resources to Support Faculty Through Incidents of Targeted Harassment. Her fellowship research examines the experiences of college and university faculty who, based on their expertise, teaching, or public comments, are targeted by members of the public with harassment and threats. After a decade of writing about harassment and campus sexual assault and hearing from students who openly shared horror stories about the limited sex education they received during their K-12 schooling, a clear theme emerged for Nina. The urgent need for exploring the ways in which college students could benefit from sex education of a comprehensive, justice-based approach to learning about sex, sexuality, pleasure, and desire. She is currently pursuing certification as a sex educator. Her writing and research on topics such as gender-based violence and harassment experienced at academic conferences has been featured in many esteemed academic journals, including Gender in Education and Journal of Critical Thought and Praxis. Nina's public writing has been featured in national outlets such as The Washington Post, Huffington Post, Yes Magazine, Progressive Planning Magazine, and the OC Weekly. We swim into some charged topics today in our conversation. We do have a few checkpoints concerning ice cream and bunny farms, but we also discuss the messaging around harassment and female safety as well as the multitude of layers comprising true self-care, including boundary setting and the utilization of feminine outfit design as both expression and armor. Please welcome a vintage-loving urbanist teaching radical love, my friend, Dr. Nina Flores. Well, my dear friend, I'm so very happy to be talking with you today. Thank you for coming on and spending a little of your time with me. I'm so thrilled. So thrilled. When did classes actually officially start? This is the end of the second week. I don't know how we're coming to a close at the start of the semester, but yes, that's what it feels like. For this junction, this particular cluster, it's closing. Holding all the multiple truths. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all? And isn't that what this is all about? Holding all the multiple truths. That's perfectly said. Yes, we are. (laughs) The end of week two, technically, in the semester. How's it feeling so far? Fantastic. Teaching is the best part of this job. 
Would you be so kind to share a little bit about the program that you are assistant professor for? Sure. It is the Social and Cultural Analysis of Education program at Long Beach State. We are a master's program that uses education in multiple ways, K through 12, higher ed, community ed, as a vehicle for understanding systems of oppression and how they operate in society. I just need a moment. (laughs) (laughs) And as you know, you have been at our sessions. There's a, a range of things that go into that, right? It's never just the academic, it's the personal, it's the professional, it's the self-awareness. Yes, Yes, what I really love about it, it is rooted in this holistic understanding that in order to make the changes across these systems, it really is about the unpacking of and the exploration of our personal values and decisions. When you'd said it's the social and the emotional component as well, are people aware of that when they decide to join your program? I'm curious if that's something that maybe draws people in because it is such a holistically focused. It is not in the official description, but I do know through word of mouth that there is some sense that if you know someone who's gone through this program, that they are very keyed in, they're very keen about knowing the unlearning and the learning that that happens here. You said maybe one of my favorite words, unlearning. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. It's an educational program about social and cultural constructs and advocacy for change in an educational construct. And then we're saying, oh, but let's explore what it's like to unpack, unlayer, unlearn what that could all mean. And all the things that maybe we've been, that we've been taught not only in education, but in society and by our families. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with what we were taught, but it does mean that there are better ways that we could be living better ways of knowing, better ways of engaging, or maybe that fit us just a little bit differently. Like last night, our class is about radical love and emotional intelligence, because it's just as important as a theory course, right? Where we're learning these different theories to have critical perspectives on these issues. And if we can't access the emotion that's driving our responses to them, then it's also we're not able to access those emotions when we're developing solutions or working with other people. There will also be parts where it's just me just being a full-on fangirl. Or maybe I'll leave it in. We'll see. <laughs> As well, I pop- I'm obviously a fangirl, or I would never have had you in. I'm like, please enjoy my friend Kimmy. I mean, KJ. <laughs> Kimmy's fine. I was actually thinking, formulating how our conversation might go today. I know you and I have spoken about this. When you've brought me in to speak with your students, which such an honor, by the way, I could unpack what that was like for me to be contacted by you. We wondered how we introduce our audiences, our students, to how we have been in each other's lives before school, before podcasts, before what we do now. You calling me Kimmy is perfectly fine. Well, we're going there. Let's take it all the way back, my friend, before we dive in to what can sometimes become really layered conversations around resilience and creativity, social change and wellness. I do like to know just a couple tidbits about folks who decide and accept my invitation to come under the show. Couple questions. First thing that comes to your mind, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream in the moment, if you have one? And then what was it when you were, say, seven? Right now, mint chip, but I feel like that's my adult favorite flavor at all times. Like probably my entire adult life, it's been mint chip, just go-to. But as a kid, always Rocky Road. Been my two go-tos. Yeah, Rocky Road, Rocky Road forever. Little marshmallow action. Okay. 
what was your favorite pastime when school was over, but it wasn't yet dinner time? What would you like to do? I assume we're talking about younger days because I feel like my high school time would have all been consumed with homework during those hours. Like those Mm -hmm. are the peak, crank it out before you have dinner. Hope for the best. But yeah, I'm trying to think. I spent a lot of time outside in our backyard. I do remember that. We had rabbits as pets. And we were told that there were two girl rabbits by the pet store. And of course, it's not that that was a lie. It's that it was a misunderstanding that they actually were not two girl rabbits. And so within a really (laughs) short period of time, we had 10 rabbits. And then within a very short period of time after that, my sister and I went out to the backyard and we had, and there was this enclosure that my dad had built for them to live in. And they started digging holes in the ground. And I don't know, there's an entire rabbit city occurring underneath our home. And all of a sudden we counted one day and there were 22 rabbits above ground. There must be many, many more underneath. So we actually started bringing them to the Knott's Berry Farm Petting Zoo, these little lop-eared rabbits. So that was a huge pastime for years. Ultimately, when did the rabbit ranch stop existing or did it? I mean, are there still rabbits hanging out at your childhood home? That's a great question. Um, For all I know, the rabbits continue thriving at the childhood home, but we took so many of them to nuts where they had so much room to run around. Like you could see that they had open areas. And I think at that point, they stopped reproducing. What a fantastic story. Did not see that coming. (laughs) Okay. What books are currently on your nightstand? Well, I can tell you right next to me, I have Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, because it's just a go-to read that I keep going back to. And I have Hope in the Dark, which I've assigned to some of my students by Rebecca Solnit, because it is always timely. And a book on anarchist pedagogies, because I feel like this is naming exactly how it is that I move through the teaching world and it's freedom, right? It's ultimate freedom and focus on the collective. Beautiful. I'm going to include those titles in our episode notes for folks to check out on recommendations. Final question, at least for this first lightning round, is you are an educator, a teacher now. Did you always want to be? I have really vivid memories of trying to teach my little sister things like fractions when I was young. I think that there's always been a educator vibe there. For a while, I didn't know what that could look like. So in my mind, it had to be in the K through 12 realm. And that's definitely not for me. You know me, this is, I should be working with adult students in college and beyond. And I do, yay. But it's a different world, right? There is that kind of different Mm -hmm. flexibility with what I'm able to do. And I like relating to that age group a lot. So I think that in that sense, that I'm more of a facilitator than a teacher in that regard. And so I think that has always been there in some way. Had you spent any time in education for younger than college age? No, I've done some like staff work with uh, actually CCEJ, the California Conference on Equality and Justice. I've done work with some youth there as part of their Building Bridges camps where for three days they're up in the mountains learning about systems of oppression and racism and how they identify. And it's really powerful work with high schoolers. So I do enjoy that immensely. Your students are so lucky to have you. I'm lucky to have them. But I do love that this is a collaborative model facilitation. I really resonate with that idea and model of education. And as you've said, I have witnessed firsthand the way that it moves, at least in your classes within this program. And it's incredibly vibrant and dynamic, the way that 
folks are feeling empowered and heard because they have this opportunity to contribute in a way that they feel safe and also seen, which I think is key in the work that you're doing. All right. I'm curious with everything that you are doing and how busy you are, and we'll probably get into a little of all that you do, which is many, many things. How is it that you move through your day? Do you have a particular mantra or theme that provides you guidance? Day to day, I don't know that I use a specific guide as much as really listening to myself in a lot of ways. I try not to schedule anything before 10 because it only took me 40 years to finally realize I'm not a morning person. (laughs) Um, I can make it happen, but it takes time. So anytime that I've had really early meetings, sometimes when I teach um, on the quarter system, occasionally it'll be at 9 a.m. And I will be up hours and hours and hours beforehand so that I can appear bright and shiny and ready to go. But I'm much sharper as the day goes on um, and even into the evening hours. So I think that even that small adjustment of knowing my own time schedule is huge in my day to day. But I think the overall, I have a post-it on my computer, which all my students are very familiar with by now because I show it to them every day, which is says more magic, more joy, because so much of what we learn and so much of what we're reading and just the world in general is heavy. There's a lot of heaviness in our classes. You know, I teach a lot about racial residential segregation and it's interesting about one class this semester in particular, but so many of the isms that we're talking about, the classism, the sexism, heterosexism, all of these things, they aren't just theoretical. We're all living them in very different ways. And it can be tempting to double down on that, to try to get deeper into it. And I think that that becomes tempting because we get good at critique, but Mm -hmm. it also opens a door to these kind of cycles of cynicism that can Mm -hmm. happen so easily. So that little more magic, more joy post-it note has been my reminder for years not to get trapped in that cycle and that you can hold both the joy and the critique and that the critique is really only the first step. So if all we're learning to do is critique, we're wasting those opportunities for now, like applying and doing better and finding points of connection to build on. You said both And it's not dismissing the heaviness, the enormity of what we're experiencing these days. And boy, do we have it in wheelbarrows. But it's possible that both could be true. You can Mm -hmm. experience the heavy, you can experience the grief, and you can understand that there is space for joy, hope, magic. Mm. All of the things, right? All of the things. How did you come about putting together that post-it? It's very succinct, but it speaks of something so universal. I love the word magic. I love the word joy. And you really said it beautifully right now. How do we get back to a place of understanding that there can be both? There are some sadnesses. There are some, the heavy, as we keep saying, charged topics. Joy and magic can also be charged as well. How do you see yourself modeling and carrying that philosophy? for others, for your students, when they come into the classroom Mm -hmm. and and they Mm -hmm. are feeling the weight, how do you find yourself reconnecting with the and, the both? I don't think I did a very good job at it for a long time. So I think that I, because I was in in it, right, like in what I was studying, in what I was teaching, feeling it also in personal and social life, that it got really comfortable to be in that place of using anger, put it productively, right? Like that productive sense of like, here's what we right. do. And I think that when I was able to take some steps back from that over time and see how unsustainable that is and that you can still feel those things at the same time that you carve space to live a life that's not that. So I think the example or the line that I've given students to make this 
we kind of joke about, oh, well, the end of capitalism, the end of just being, you know, the value of our labor potential, what would that look like? And at some point I had said, well, if we are waiting for the end of whatever system of oppression we believe is holding us back to have any joy at all, then we must believe we don't deserve any because that mm. will never maybe happen in our lifetime. And so are we going to wait out this time where we just, where we're just in this and we don't refuse the idea that that's the only thing we're worthy of feeling? That we are only our material circumstances. I absolutely believe our material circumstances guide so much of our experience. But imagine, how do we refuse just a piece of it and say, no, just for five minutes even. I was <laughs> just about to say. material world for five minutes, yeah. I was just about to say, it doesn't have to be this wildly huge gesture to make an impact, at least reminding ourselves that we can pause, that we can take a breath. Right. And it doesn't have to look like models that exist that we are maybe aspiring to. And so I think even having different ideas of what those pauses can be, are they focused on our families? Are they just focused on us? Are mm -hmm. they just kind of windows to just think and be? Are they moments where we're doing something just because we love it without guilt? Let's take a second to pause in this amazing conversation for a quick check-in. If you're enjoying this episode and have found value in the stories from the guests who've joined me on the podcast, I would love it if you could rate and leave a review for the show. You can do so on Apple Podcasts or any of your listening platforms. Your reviews help boost visibility of the show and spread the word to more listeners. Plus, I love hearing from you. If you have found anything you've heard on this show valuable or helpful for you, please let us know. And it's really easy to do. And it takes maybe a minute. You can go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash astonishing stories. Also, a little something to consider. Every review you leave enters you into a chance for winning a free 30-minute private session with me to discuss anything of your choice. I'll pick the name of the winner every Friday and announce it on my Instagram and Facebook stories. So let's hear it, friends. Ratethispodcast.com forward slash astonishing stories. I really appreciate you. Yes, that was absolutely lovely what you just said. All the things I want to unpack and talk with you more about. We were jokingly, but really not talking about how we could probably continue our conversations well into the nights and the years. So we may just very well make this a series because... Well, we've already had the beginning of a series over the past couple of months. Yes. <laughs> years. Yes. Yes. You'd said something along the intentionality around creating, carving out space and what it might look like. And does that mean the focus then is shifted towards a particular element like family or mm. our own personal work? Or where might our interests shift in how we can be participants and advocates for social causes or our communities? These are all definitions in my book for participation in self-care and self-compassion. I mean, or is it? Would one consider what you'd spoken about, taking pauses, being intentional about creating space? Maybe my question is, is what is your definition or how do you understand compassion and care for self? That's a great question. It's something for me, I think about like the ways that that shows up as action, right? So if it's a feeling, there's one thing to feel compassion for yourself. 
or feel like you are offering your self-care. And then there's a second piece of action, right, where I'm doing the things that I know will care for myself. And I actually just led a workshop recently, but with the use the self-care wheel. So you had the emotional self-care, psychological, the spiritual, the physical, all of these different pieces. And I think it's sometimes easy to do really well at one of them and forget the other ones and not realize, you know, not think of the multiple parts of yourself that need caring for or that deserve that attention. And it's so easy to put ourselves last. But when I think about what that looks like, it looks so different day to day because what we need as people is different day to day. So some days I need a lot of recharge time or downtime and I feel fortunate and privileged to be able to carve that time and choose when I need to carve that time despite having a demanding job and other commitments. I don't have the commitment of children. And I know that a lot of my friends who have children really struggle to carve that time. I recognize the privilege in having the time that I have. You even saying that it took 40 years to realize that you probably shouldn't be doing anything before 9 a.m. I would go with 10, but yeah, we can go with nine. Sure. That's right. We did say 10. There was that one exception or occasional exception where classes might start at nine. Yeah. And yeah. And I typically teach in the evening, yes. but there are times when I, I teach a critical race studies course at UCLA about once a year. And, and very often that class is, is in the morning. That's in the morning. But knowing that you realize the steps that you need to take to best inform yourself on how to show up and be present, mm-hmm. even though this is against your edges and it's outside of the preferred zone. Yeah, but I, I know the limitations and I will do uh, adapt as necessary to make sure that I'm bringing the best version of myself there. That's exactly it. And so that's a beautiful definition that I've stumbled upon myself taking about 40 years, which is the assessment and the reevaluation of what actually does provide the space for me to be at my most optimal and present. And there's a world of difference between a 9 a.m. start time and a 10 a.m. start time. There is. And I am not quite sure how we all got stuck on this 8 or 9 a.m. start time. But for some reason, the kind of defined work day of Mm -hmm. 8 to 5 or 9 to 6 that I really don't know that many people who are on that kind of distinct schedule. Yet it it permeates culture as the work hours. And there's an assumption that you will be free during those hours. Meanwhile, I'm like, if you want to schedule a meeting at 8 or 9 p.m., like I'm awake and I am ready to have, you know, like if you want to adjust my day to start at noon, noon to nine, sure, if that's the nine hours you need. But even that is just so weird. Right. But it's the being open and in tune to where that you can best be present. Mm -hmm. And that is a service to everybody involved when you can be most aware, most present with and open and receptive to interactions. I know when I'm present and I am at my best, I can pick up on nonverbal cues so much easier. I can quote unquote, read a room. I can read the energy of whomever I'm in contact with. In in the work culture that I'm a part of, it's actually 8 a.m., which is why I don't work there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And I was curious about that. Who does say that those are the business and operational hours? And during COVID, it's weird too, right? I'm out 
we're still in COVID. And I've had a number of students who've talked to me about being employed in a place where they're finding that they're able to get more done at home. And I have cautioned them against telling their employer that they're doing that because I said, then your employer will pay you less. They will only pay you for those hours that you're able to get everything done quickly. And they've hired you for this amount of hours for this task. So good for you that you're able to get this task completed more quickly, but don't talk yourself out of the very limited funds that they're likely giving you. Right? That's These right. are almost barely like minimum wage, let alone a living wage job. And if you go from a five-day-a-week job to four, simply because you can get it done sooner, like, nope, 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 nope. That's right. You had spoken a little bit about the self-care wheel, and I've seen it also presented in the form of ripple effects. What's wonderful or maybe daunting to some people is the realization that our one decision to employ careful, compassionate practices such as start times and how we nourish our bodies, whether it's with nutrition or whether it's exercise or all of the above. I'm curious if you've noticed, do you have any more specific examples that maybe you've learned you've learned and how it's rippled and impacted, or have you noticed how your choices to take better care of yourself and set boundaries, how that's played out in other arenas of your life, Mm -hmm. family and relationships, finances and spirituality? Even knowing the, what you need and when and how much is something that's taken a long time, but I will know and have it ready. Let's see at the end of the day that I just need to change out of my work clothes and get into something. I don't know. I like wearing little sexy, silky things in the evening Mm -hmm. and lounging around on my little green velvet couch, which you and I have had many cocktails on before. Yes. And I love that feeling. I just look out the window. I pour myself a glass of something and I just enjoy those moments. I don't need that every day, but there are many days I need it. There are the days where I need to... I'm a West Coast swing dancer, so I'll go take classes and I'll stay after a little bit and practice. And sometimes I need that kind of body engagement. And sometimes I'll take a class that's beyond my level intentionally so that I Mm -hmm. so have to focus on the body movement that whatever else is in my mind is going to be gone. That's brilliant. There is a changing of clothes, literally a changing of hats and Mm -hmm. our quote unquote uniforms that are associated with particular activities and particular frames of reference in mind. I've discovered that as a remote worker and mm-hmm. working from home in a small space, how do you designate and keep the boundaries clear as you move between the arenas, right. as you move between the different communities? So changing the clothes, physically putting away your laptop and the mm-hmm. notebooks that you're working with so that you can make space for the fact that now this is our dining room table. I think that's incredibly powerful. And I don't believe enough people recognize that that is another form of boundary setting. And Oh, absolutely. For me, the way that I dress myself will set my mood. Like I will feel like a better version of it. I mean, you know, I dress up frequently. I like dressing up. I wear only secondhand clothes that I've bought over the years, right? And so I have a specific style that I enjoy. And if I don't dress that way, I feel like a less me version. So there is something transformative about putting me on and then being able to take public me off and Mm -hmm. have private me. I do. The very first time I spoke, it was my very first podcast episode, which by the way, I never thought I was going to do a podcast. It just kind of came up that way. But I spoke specifically to that piece of what is your armor? What is Mm -hmm. the fortitude that you need in order to have the courage or the conviction to make the next step. 
It's my red lipstick, right? So the shared lipstick. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so what you had just said about how is it that I can be transformative, fluid, and lock into this purpose? Well, one way you can do that is by how you present yourself, how you dress, how you design your outside. That's a lovely example. We'll say that it, although I've, it's been probably 10 years now that I've had the secondhand vintage clothing only rule for myself. But I started dressing up so that people wouldn't talk to me because, you know, I was studying harassment. And if I was walking down the street or whatever, you know, there, there'd be a lot of harassment, especially where I was living at the time. And that is my research, right? It's street harassment, you know, targeted harassment of faculty, all of these kind of heavy, mostly gender and racially based things. But when I dress up, I get far less harassment. I get far less unwanted attention. Mm-hmm. And there is something really distinct about that that bothers me, but that is also then part of that armor. I know that if I do this, I am not going to receive some of the unwanted attention that I was trying to avoid. Oh my gosh. We absolutely have to continue that thread of thought. I know you've done a lot of work in harassment. Uh, You wrote an article around harassment at conferences, professional conferences. Why is it that we have to piece together our armory in preparation for presenting as who we are and what we do as professionals? So much time and energy is put into what we need to, I suppose, look like and present Mm -hmm. before we walk out our doors each day. Also, the inequities being a woman, especially. Right the time and energy that needs to be placed into that. Women of color mm-hmm. on top of that all. And being prepared to be read as however someone else sees you, which I think we've had that conversation mm-hmm. before, that I'm never read as my actual biracial self. I'm always read as someone oh, who's yeah. not me. Of course, of course, people's prescriptions. It also strikes me how empowering it can be to plan and lay out your outfit Especially, I mean, I'm high femme. It also took years to realize mm-hmm. that that was okay, right? So growing up and even, I think about even the political socialization where we even narrow feminism as some small, very specific brand that you have to follow. I'm like, no, it's not. I staunch feminist right here, but I will dress up every day. Give me that lipstick. I wear fishnets all fall and winter long. Like this is just who I am. And it is something I love about me that it took years to claim that as it's okay. We have to move into that space and discussion about what it takes for us to embrace feel that we are empowered to claim what has always been ours, but it was almost like we were asking for permission always, always, Mm -hmm. always to simply be female, simply be feminine. And even those closest to us, or at least in my experience, those that we had grown up around, those who are closest to us have been my biggest detractors around Mm -hmm. that, keeping me in their prescription that they have of me. It is such a intensely relevant and charged conversation that I can't wait to explore with you. <laughs> I'm in. The series continues. Yes. Thank you for spending some time with of me. Course. And like we know this is barely a scratch on where you and I can go. And so, yeah, series, definitely. How might folks be able to find you if they would like to reach out, chat with you a little bit, and learn more about the program? I'm on any social media at Bell Hooked Me. That's my handle because I love Bell Hooks and she mm-hmm. certainly hooked me. 
people are welcome to email me as well, whether it's uh, Nina, N-I-N-A, Dout Flores, F-L-O-R-E-S, at C-S-U-L-B, L-B for Long Beach, edu. Perfect. I'll make sure people know how to find you. And like I said, you're going to be around. I'll make sure of it so people will absolutely have a chance. I'm actually wondering if we can maybe do something where folks ask questions and we can Happy. maybe thrash it out. I'm in already. Well, I love you madly. I am so honored and thrilled that not only are you my friend and sister, but that you are in my life and that we can have these wonderful conversations and that somebody's out there in the universe, in the world, promoting, requesting, encouraging conversations like this to occur. So well, the honor's all mine. So much love your way. I'll hold up my little heart hands that no one else can see, but you can imagine <laughs> what they are. Okay, friend, until next time. Take care. You too. Well, that's the show today, my healers. What did you think? I would love to hear what stood out for you in this episode. How wondrous and compelling is Nina Flores? She stuns me every single time we converse, even after decades of friendship. And today, after our rather quote-unquote brief conversation, I have paragraphs of takeaways. I say brief because when we get together, we spend hours upon hours of discussion and analysis of any and every topic that grabs our attention. That can be from ska music to community organizing efforts against street harassment. I think you might be able to understand and perhaps support my intention to have Nina back to engage in more discussion, yes? Well, here's what I've got for notes. Let me know if you agree or Perhaps you have more to add. Number one, more magic, more joy. This is a mantra and a reminder to remain open to wonder and curiosity, new different ways of interacting with each other for showing up in the world. Number two, why are we so good at critique? If all we're learning to do is critique, we could very well be wasting the opportunities of finding points upon which we could build connections. Number three, observe the messaging we received as women regarding harassment and safety and courage. How do you prepare? What is your armor as you walk out your door today, ladies? Number four, self-care and compassion show up as action and through a holistic lens. Emotional, psychological, spiritual, and physical facets are to be addressed. Number five, self-compassion practices are multi-layered, multi-defined. The intentionality of carving out space and shifting the focus towards a particular specific element like family or our own personal work. Number six, lessons in reframes. The thought that self-care is luxury, or privilege, when in actuality is a non-negotiable essential. A second reframe, trading dollars for hours is unsustainable. So perhaps instead view dollars received for valuable work completed. Number seven, here are a couple of suggestions of self-care to infuse into your daily practice. Intentionally Enroll in a difficult dance class. Design your outfit for the day. Give permission to create clear boundaries of public me 
versus private me. I encourage you to check the show notes for information on how to connect with Nina and delve into the incredible work and research she pursues currently. And if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the conversations you've heard on the show about healing and resilience, creativity, wellness advocacy, I invite you to leave a review and to subscribe to the podcast. Your download so far humbles me, but also incites me to continue holding space for these charged conversations with inspiring change makers. It is such a pleasure and an honor to spend time with you as we uncover and revel in our stories of astonishing light. Thank you for listening to the Stories of Astonishing Light podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can support this podcast in a few different ways. First, you could post a screenshot of the podcast on your Instagram and Facebook stories or in your feeds and tag me at Bliss Begins Within or Musings on Other, and I can repost you. Another way to spread the love is to share this podcast with your friends and family, anyone whom you think might enjoy it as well. A third way to support this podcast is to subscribe, download, and leave a positive review on any of the platforms you listen to the show on. In this way, we can continue to grow our audience and reach more listeners. A quick and direct way to leave a review is by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash astonishing stories. I am so grateful to spend this time with you exchanging such uplifting tales of resilience. We'll see you next time. Thank you.